I'm Andrew Smith, and you're listening to Today in Church History, a place where we're reminded that history is truly his story. History is the story of God and the demonstration of his glory in the theater of world events. Today is Wednesday, December 4th, 2019. But on this day in history, December 4th, 1584, the father of New England, John Cotton, was born. Considered to be the patriarch of New England, many lessons can be learned from the life and ministry of John Cotton. He received his bachelor's degree at the age of 13 from Trinity College in Cambridge, but Cotton was not yet converted. Later he said that he rejoiced when the death bells tolled for the great Puritan William Perkins. The reason he gave? Well, Perkins preached too strongly on human sin and God's judgment. But following his master's degree at the age of 19, he began sitting under the preaching ministry of Richard Sibbs. As he listened, the Spirit of God convicted him that his intellectual pursuits and theology were nothing more than a mind game of sorts. He was trusting in his knowledge rather than in Christ alone. Cotton was finally converted after hearing Sibbs' preaching series on regeneration and hearing about God's sovereign grace in regeneration. Cotton went on to be ordained in 1610 at the age of 26, and then two years later became the vicar of a large parish church in Lincolnshire, England. During his ministry, Cotton served brief suspensions from ministry for his non-conforming ways. He was a strong proponent for predestination, which led him to be summoned by William Laud, a staunch Arminian and Archbishop of Canterbury, the highest position in the Church of England other than the king himself. Preaching was the emphasis of his ministry. Preaching twice each Lord's Day, as well as the early mornings of Thursday and Friday, as well as Saturday afternoons. Persuaded that conformity was not an option for him, Cotton immigrated to the colony of Massachusetts Bay in July of 1633. He began ministering as a teacher in the First Church of Boston, which was then pastored by John Wilson. Earlier, Cotton had been responsible for preaching the farewell sermon to John Winthrop's party prior to their departure for America. Cotton had widespread influence, not only in ecclesiastical affairs, but also civil affairs in New England Puritanism. He was at the heart of the controversy in New England regarding the place of the government. On one side of the aisle were those who argued that after the coming of Christ, the spiritual authority of the state had been abolished. On the other side of the aisle, Cotton led the way by arguing that such an argument diluted God-sanctioned civil authority. The result could be chaos and disorder. Cotton's earnestness was rooted in a desire for reformation, which he didn't believe was possible in New England apart from civil repercussions for heresy. If one took away civil consequences for believing wrong things, Cotton argued, then what incentive would people have for believing the truth? Cotton wrote almost 50 works in his life, in addition to massive piles of correspondence. He was not without trial either. Both he and his first wife, Elizabeth Horrocks, contracted malaria from which she later died. He survived her and married Sarah Hockridge. Between these two women, Cotton had several children, many of whom entered the ministry. One son, named Seaborn due to his birth on Cotton and his first wife Elizabeth's voyage over to America, became a minister in New Hampshire for 26 years. Another son, John Jr., pastored in Plymouth, Massachusetts as a preacher to the Indians. Cotton also had a daughter named Moriah, who married Increase Mather and was the mother of Cotton Mather. The Mathers are still considered some of the most respected and notable Puritans in history. 
Now, in this podcast, I'd like to outline several lessons from the life and ministry of John Cotton, considered to be the patriarch of New England. First, we learn about a warning to not only engage the mind, but also the heart. As stated earlier, Cotton was caught up in the clerical sin of intellectualism without heart devotion to Christ. His parents were Christians, and he received a Christian education at the finest institution. Yet he did not know Christ. Knowledge of the Bible, even deep theological knowledge, does not guarantee one's salvation. Nor does a Christian education or home life. God saves the whole sinner, not just part of him. Both the mind and the heart are redeemed. You may know the Bible, but do you know Christ? Do you love Christ? Do you walk in His ways? Does your theological study result in doxological devotion, or is theology merely a mind game to you, devoid of the heart's affections? Secondly, we learn that simple preaching is better than eloquent preaching. Once Cotton was converted, he did away with the Church of England's emphasis on eloquent preaching. He adopted the plain preaching style of those like William Perkins, a man he had despised before. Expositional preaching is plain preaching, because the power lies not in the minister, but in the message. God's Word is a sharp two-edged sword. The power of God's Word lies in expositional preaching, not in eloquent preaching. Third, a seminary degree does not guarantee salvation or the assurance of salvation. Cotton pastored a church in Lincolnshire, England for 21 years, but it may surprise you to know that by his own admittance, he was not brought to full assurance of faith until he was already installed as the pastor. Shortly after his installation, he also got married. On his wedding day, Cotton was noted as saying that he first received assurance of God's love into his own soul by the Spirit of God who effectually applied his promises of eternal grace and life unto him, which he happily kept the rest of his days. But he said, and I quote, God made that day a day of double marriage to me, end quote. The Spirit of God testifies with our hearts that we are indeed sons of God. Vexations of the soul are not unique to non-ministers. Only God can assure our hearts through the gospel that we belong to Him through Christ. Fourth, we learn that faithful gospel ministry fights Arminianism as a hill worth dying on. During his pastoral ministry, Cotton became known for fighting a strong faction of Arminianism that was prevalent broadly within the Church of England and specifically within his own parish. Cotton was happy to be identified as the local Calvinist. He did not back down from teaching the doctrine of predestination, even though it wasn't popular to do so. As a result, many traveled to his parish for pastoral internships of sorts, where they learned the doctrines of grace from Cotton. Pastoral students, as far as Germany, were sent to Cotton for him to train them and teach them in the ways of the doctrines of grace. Calvinism was a hill worth dying on because it touches at the heart of what the gospel is, as well as most other doctrines of the Bible. Fifth, don't underestimate written correspondence, including texting. Cotton answered many letters written to him from abroad and thus fit into the great Puritan tradition of letter writing. Now today, letter writing has fallen away and been replaced with emails and texting. I think these are appropriate forms of correspondence that in some ways are even superior to a phone conversation. In our busy age, it is sometimes more effective to minister to souls through writing. Thoughts have a way of being crystallized when they are written down. In addition, the recipient can return to this written correspondence for further reflection, whereas phone conversations are quickly forgotten. 
Smart ministers will not view emails and texting as impersonal annoyances, but opportunities to engage the souls of those under their pastoral care. A volume of John Cotton's letters entitled The Correspondence of John Cotton contains some 125 letters covering the years 1621 to 1652. This volume is nearly 700 pages, but reading old letters from those of the past I think are great exercises in seeing how sensitive pastoral matters were handled. Many lessons for our own day can be gleaned from these letters of the past. Sixth, fleeing persecution is not necessarily a sign of cowardice. Though summoned to appear before William Laud, the Archbishop of Canterbury, for failing to conform to the standards set by the Church of England, Cotton actually fled. This was not uncommon. Luther and Calvin fled from persecution in their own contexts, as did many of the Puritans. Cotton was intrigued by the concept of colonization in New England. He opted to immigrate to America. He felt too restricted by the Church of England's policies. This was not a sign of cowardice because Cotton refused to compromise. His move to the New World was not easy and was often uncomfortable, bringing with it a new set of trials. Fleeing religious persecution and seeking religious freedom is not just part of the American spirit, but dates back much further. The question should always be, however, am I fleeing persecution to be comfortable or to create a larger platform to continue standing for truth? Seventh, faithful ministers will not be fearful to engage in theological controversies. In the old country, that is in England, Cotton took part in the controversy over God's sovereign grace, arguing in favor for the biblical doctrine of predestination against the Arminian-leaning Church of England. In the new country, that is in America, Calvinism was solidly held to in the New England colonies. However, debates over the nature of sanctification were not. Anne Hutchison stood at the heart of the antinomian debate. She was a disciple of sorts of Cotton, following him to the New World. But she took his emphasis on sovereign grace to an unbiblical extreme. Hutchison accused New England ministers who emphasized the role of the law in sanctification as teaching works instead of teaching grace. Now, originally, Cotton admitted that many in New England placed too much of an emphasis on the law in their preaching and not enough on God's sovereign grace. But once Hutchison began teaching that assurance of faith was based solely on feelings given by the immediate revelation of the Holy Spirit having nothing to do with good works as evidence of one's salvation, Cotton encouraged her banishment, both from the church in Boston as well as from the colony itself. Perhaps engaging in a less serious controversy was Cotton's outspoken works on church government. He favored what became known as New England Congregationalism, which stood in contrast to Presbyterianism, yet without holding to the staunch independency of local churches. Eighth, humility always wins the day. On one occasion, one of his congregants said that Cotton's preaching had become flat. Cotton was actually confronted by this church member. Now, Cotton humbly responded by saying that it could be so, that he would appreciate the prayers of this particular church member if indeed his sermons had become flat. Such humility allowed Cotton, I think, to work with people. It prevented discouragement and disillusionment. Cotton did not view himself as more important than he actually was. Though an important figure, he understood that his sermons may appear at times flat, and he was willing to learn from this and move on, even if the criticism wasn't necessarily legitimate. What figures in church history would you like to hear about? Are there certain events you would like to know more about from church history? 
What about theological controversies? If so, write to me, asmith at preachingsociety.org. asmith at preachingsociety.org. I would love to hear your ideas for a future podcast. Also, I would encourage you to subscribe to these podcasts via Apple iTunes. You can search for me by typing in Today in Church History. Remember that history is spelled H-I-S-S-T-O-R-Y. Until next time, this is Andrew Smith.